Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Connie Huck and in today's episode I'm joined by public speaker, author, TED Talk sensation and self-proclaimed unshakable optimist Simon Sinek. He's here to tell us about his book Leaders Eat Last, why some teams pull together and others don't. Simon, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. Now, Simon has also brought along five objects that have inspired his writing and his career, and I'm looking forward to hearing the stories behind his selection. Simon, you're well known for your best-selling first book, Start With Why, how great leaders inspire everyone to take action. Why did you decide to build on those ideas with Leaders Eat Last? Well, my work is semi-autobiographical, and so my own struggles as I go through life and work you know, um, I have ideas that help me solve my problems and those ideas become the books. The first book, Start With Why, was born out of the loss of my own passion for my work. And people gave me stupid advice like, do what you love and find your bliss. Like, what am I supposed to do with that, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the solution that I found became Start With Why. It wasn't meant to be a book. It was just meant to help me and it worked. And the second book, Leaders Eat Last, again, um, as my career started to grow, one discovers that you have friends that you didn't know that you had. <laughs> and uh, I started to struggle with issues of trust because I didn't know who really was my friend and who wasn't. And so that became Leaders Eat Last, trying to understand trust and cooperation. So after writing Leaders Eat Last, have you managed to filter out the wheat from the chaff with your faux friends? What I was trying to understand is what is the root of trust? Like, why do we trust each other? Everybody says, oh, you have to trust people. Like, mm. OK, so what does that even mean? You know, you have to cooperate. Well, how does that even happen? Do you have to work with trustworthy people or is it something else? And I learned that it actually isn't the people, it's more of the environment. And that's fascinating. The conclusion that I learned was not what I expected. You assume it's people that make an environment, but actually you're sort of flip-reversing It's that. the environment that makes the people, yeah. We're social animals and we respond to the environments we're in. Mm, absolutely. Well, we have got the audiobook of Leaders Eat Lost right here and we're going to hear the opening lines from the book on what leaders are. Leaders are the ones who run headfirst into the unknown. They rush toward the danger. They put their own interests aside to protect us or to pull us into the future. Leaders would sooner sacrifice what is theirs to save what is ours, and they would never sacrifice what is ours to save what is theirs. This is what it means to be a leader. It means they choose to go first into danger, headfirst toward the unknown. And when we feel sure they will keep us safe, we will march behind them and work tirelessly to see their visions come to life and proudly call ourselves their followers. Well, I mentioned that Simon brought in a number of objects with him today and it's time to hear about your first item, Simon. So what's the story behind this coin? So in the military, they give out things called challenge coins and they give them out as a way of saying thank you for doing work that's above and beyond. And... Uh, I remember the first time I was given a challenge coin, what they do is they put them in their own palm and then they shake your hand to hand it to you. Oh, so you have no knowledge before the handshake no, that is coming? No, no, oh. no, you don't. And it's really an honour um, because they don't give them out willy-nilly and it's their way of saying, thank you, you've, you've done a service for us. Um, and it reminds me the value of not only service but gratitude. So... Tell us a little bit about your military life, because this is quite integral, I'd say, to your books and also your thinking. So I, I never served in the military, and except for my grandfather, who was in World War II, like everybody's grandfather. You know, we don't have any military in our family. Mm. But I was introduced to folks in the military a long time ago when I first started to articulate Start With Why. And I became big fans of theirs. I think they're incredibly misunderstood, for one, by the general population. It's not perfect. They, they, there's issues as well. But on balance... 
there's so much more advanced than I think most companies in, in how the people show up for each other versus for themselves. I've learned a lot. I've learned more about what it means to be human from folks in uniform than I have from anybody in a suit. That's for sure. I've hugged more people in uniforms than I ever have in a suit, and I've cried with more people in uniforms than I ever have with people in suits. Which is interesting because people would often associate that very essence of being in a uniform, that very regimented military way. Actually, it's once again the complete opposite, isn't it? Like I said, they're misunderstood. When a military organisation is highly effective, it's less command and control. And we see plenty of command and control environments in business all the time where everybody comes to work and are afraid to make a decision for fear of getting in trouble from their boss. That, that's a command and control fear-based culture. And that, unfortunately, is more normal in business than the other, where in the military I find that there's tremendous amounts of independence afforded to very young people to make decisions, more so than in business. So how did this sort of interest in the military come about? It was an accident. Very, very early on when I started to write about, or to not even write about, talk about, start with why, long before there was a TED Talk and long before there was a book, I had the opportunity to have a meeting with an Air Force general. Basically, I crashed in another meeting, and he was there. And he took an interest in my work, and he invited me to the Pentagon to present it to him and, and to others. And relationships started to form, and they just kept inviting me back. So my connection with the military goes right back to the very beginnings of Start With Why. They were some of the early adopters who first took a liking to the work. Wow. So when did you come up with the title Leaders Eat Last? Yeah, well, when we were coming up with the title, I was sitting in my publisher's office and we started telling stories. And I was trying to explain where the book came from. And while I was doing research with the United States Marine Corps, um, I sat down with a general and I asked him, what makes the Marines so good at what they do? And he replied simply, officers eat last. And when you visit any chow hall and any Marine base anywhere in the world, you'll see that they line up in rank order. The most junior Marine eats first, the most senior Marine eats last. They're not told to do it. No order is given to do it. Um, it's not in any rule book. It's the way their view of leadership shows up. They view leadership as a responsibility, not as a rank. You know, it's not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. Mm. Um, though a senior person, if they went to the front of the line, nobody would mind because they are senior. They don't. Yeah. And that's what it means. And, and that's what great leadership is. Great leadership is when we're willing to sacrifice our interests to take care of the lives of those around us. Just like a parent feeds their children before you feed yourself, it's the exact same thing. Well, let's hear another extract from the audiobook. Here you explain the importance of human leadership. Truly human leadership protects an organization from the internal rivalries that can shatter a culture. When we have to protect ourselves from each other, the whole organization suffers. But when trust and cooperation thrive internally, we pull together and the organization grows stronger as a result. Nearly every system in the human body exists to help us survive and thrive. Thousands of years ago, other hominid species died off while we lived on, and on, and on. And even though we have been on the planet for a relatively short period of time compared to other species, we have fast become the most successful and the only unrivaled animal on Earth. So successful, in fact, that the decisions we make affect the ability of other animals, even other human beings, to survive or thrive. The systems inside us that protect us from danger and encourage us to repeat behavior that is in our best interest respond to the environment in which we live and work. If we sense danger, our defenses go up. If we feel safe among our own people, in our own tribes or organizations, we relax and are more open to trust and cooperation. A close study of high-performing organizations, the ones in which the people feel safe when they come to work, reveals something astounding. 
Their cultures have an eerie resemblance to the conditions under which the human animal was designed to operate. Operating in a hostile, competitive world in which each group was in pursuit of finite resources, the systems that helped us survive and thrive as a species also work to help organizations achieve the same. There are no fancy management theories, and it's not about hiring dream teams. It's just a matter of biology and anthropology. If certain conditions are met and the people inside the organization feel safe among each other, they will work together to achieve things none of them could have ever achieved alone. The result is that their organization towers over their competitors. On to your next object, which is a bronze gecko. Yeah, so my grandfather was a bit of an odd guy. He was sort of okay. much the beat of his own drum. And he had a workshop in the back of the house that was just an explosion of things. And he was the only person who went back there. It was just nuts and bolts and things. And, <laughs> and a little bronze gecko that he just had sitting there. And it was the weirdest, funniest thing. Like in all these screws and tools and pieces of broken porcelain, there's this little bronze gecko. And he gave me this bronze gecko. And I've, I've to this day, it's in my house. It's on my desk. And it just reminds me the value of marching to the beat of my own drum. And it's okay to be accused of being weird if it's being who I am. Yeah, absolutely. The workshop and the nuts and bolts, was he making things, invent? What was he He was an engineer. Tinkering? And so he was always fixing things and tinkering. And yeah, he was always doing something. Did he have quite a mathematical mind then? He did. He did. And, and he had a very good sort of mechanical mind. He, he sort of understood how things worked. Do you think that might be part of the reason that you like to start with why and sort of dissect and see how things work? I mean, I'm definitely like a tinkerer. Um, I've been a tinkerer since I was a little boy. You know, I would take apart my toys and put them back together again. Sometimes some of the pieces didn't all make it in. But, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by how things work and, and my work deals with how people work. Yeah, you're very much a why child. I am a very much a why child. I have never grown out of that. Why? some teams pull together daddy exactly <laughs> so what was your childhood like when did you get into public speaking and as a child were you quite outspoken no i'm an introvert and so i never had a hankering to be a public speaker ever right. i've always been a behind the scenes person i like even today the some of the work that i'm proudest of is stuff that people have no idea that i do and it's funny that i have a front of the proscenium career yeah so how did that come about? Because then? people invited me to. You know, I started talking about this thing called the why. I mean, I, yeah, gave, yeah. I gave work presentations, as many of us do. And it just grew because they'd invite you back to yeah. talk to a bigger it, audience exactly. and so on. It's exactly yeah. right. It was, a, it was organic. It wasn't a decision. Yeah. It just people had invited me and I said yes. You were just very good and they wanted more. Well, I so, think I think that's the, re the reason I was very good mm. is because I didn't care. Yeah. And what I mean by that is I didn't care if that was my career or not. I had yeah. no pressure to perform or be mm -hmm. good because I didn't expect or try to get another engagement. When you show up not wanting anything from anybody and you just speak your mind and you speak your passion... It's authentic. It's authentic, and, and I think it. everyone is good. You know, passion is not a unique quality to some people and not others. No, absolutely. Well, it's time now for another extract from the audiobook, and here you explain the ideas behind the circle of safety. The circle of safety. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a-quarrelling among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in the separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one, and soon made an end of all four. Aesop, 6th century BC. Marine boot camp is not just about running, jumping, shooting, and warfare. Like the skills in our resumes, those skills may be part of the job description, 
but they are not what make Marines so effective. And though Marines will need to learn those skills, just as we are taught skills to help us in our jobs, those things do not build the trust required for the kind of teamwork and cooperation that gets the job done better than everyone else. Those things are not what make high-performing groups perform so remarkably. The ability of a group of people to do remarkable things hinges on how well those people pull together as a team, and that doesn't happen in a vacuum. This is what the circle of safety is. The world around us is filled with danger, filled with things trying to make our lives miserable. It's nothing personal, it's just the way it is. At any time, from anywhere, there are any number of forces that, without conscience, are working to hinder our success or even kill us. In caveman times, this was literally the case. The lives of early humans were threatened by all sorts of things that could end their time on Earth. Things including a lack of resources, a saber-toothed tiger, or the weather. Nothing personal, it's just life. The same is true today. The threats to our survival are constant. For our modern-day businesses and organizations, the dangers we confront are both real and perceived. The saber-toothed tiger, for example, is replaced by the ups and downs of the stock market that can affect a company's performance, or a new technology that could render an older technology or an entire business model obsolete overnight. Our competitors, even if they're not trying to put us out of business, even if they aren't trying to kill us, are still trying to frustrate our success or steal our customers. And if that's not enough, the urgency to meet expectations, the strain of capacity and other outside pressures all contribute to the constant threats that a business faces. At all times, these forces work to hinder growth and profitability. These dangers are constant. We have no control over them. They are never going to go away, and that will never change. That's just the way it is. There are dangerous forces inside our organizations as well. Unlike the forces outside, the ones inside are variable and well within our control. Some of the dangers we face are real and can have immediate impact, like layoffs that may follow a bad quarter or an underperforming year. Some of us may face the very real threat of losing our livelihoods simply because we try something new or lose the company some money. Politics also present a constant threat, the fear that others are trying to keep us down so that they may advance their own careers. Intimidation, humiliation, isolation, feeling dumb, feeling useless, and rejection are all stresses we try to avoid inside the organization. But the danger inside is controllable, and it should be the goal of leadership to set a culture free of danger from each other. And the way to do that is by giving people a sense of belonging, by offering them a strong culture based on a clear set of human values and beliefs, by giving them the power to make decisions, by offering trust and empathy by creating a circle of safety. So, as we've said, you're obviously very accustomed to public speaking, but what was it like recording the audiobook of Leaders Eat Last? And did, you did the audiobook of Start With Why as well, didn't yeah. you? Is it a very different discipline? I guess it would be, wouldn't it? It takes a lot longer than people think to record a book because you don't even go a paragraph without making a mistake. <laughs> yeah, well, as we know from my podcast, but you won't know, listener, because it's all edited. Um, um, it takes a long time and it's brutal on your voice. I mean, mm. you're, um, you go into a studio in the morning and you're, and I'm reading and talking all day. I think by the end of the book, I sound a little hoarser than when, you, <laughs> when I'm at the beginning of the book. And you're probably heavier with litres of water. <laughs> Do you find that you're very much a perfectionist? Because you are so passionate about this. Do you feel the need to sort of reread things and get it absolutely right? I'm not, actually. Um, I believe that things should be good quality. But I like things that are a little bit imperfect. I find that to be more human. 
It's more personal. It's more personal, and and I, like even on the stage, like if I stumble on something, it doesn't bother me. You know, it's it's real. I agree. It's not a theatrical presentation. Now we're going to go on to your next object, which is a book on advertising. Why have you brought this into the studio? So I used to work at Ogilvy and Mather back in a former life, <laughs> and um, it was some of the best leadership training I got. I had an amazing boss named Peter Intamaggio who never answered any of my questions. And I'd say, Peter, something's gone wrong. He would say, well, what do you think we should do? I'd say, well, I think we should do this. He goes, we'll do that. Or if I asked him, like, what should we do? He goes, I don't know. What do you think we should do? He would never answer questions. And it was always infuriating. But I remember looking back now, I realized what he was teaching me is self-reliance. Yeah. He was teaching me to make decisions. He was teaching me accountability. It really molded the kind of leader that I am now. I, I tend to be very laissez-faire, which yeah. is the way Peter was. And I tend to trust people and throw them in. And if they screw it up, I'll be like, all right, we'll try again. You know. Yeah, yeah. And so I was very grateful for my time at Ogilvy. And it really helped mold how I lead myself. Absolutely. Peter, why do some teams not pull together? I don't know. You tell me. Exactly. exactly. He made yeah. me write the book. <laughs> so when did you come up with your plan to sort of improve the workplace, as it were? How did you go about growing this movement? Well, it was born right when I discovered Start With Why, right when I discovered the Golden Circle. You know, um, I fell out of love with my own work. As I said before, people gave me stupid advice like, do what you love. I'm like, <laughs> I'm doing the same thing and I don't love it anymore. And the restoration of my passion and, the, you know, finding love in my work again, I realized was not unique to me. And we tend to treat loving our, our work like a lottery, you know, that like you go out with friends and somebody at the table says, I love my job. And the rest of us go, oh, you're so lucky. Yeah. Like they won something. Mm. And I realized that fulfillment in our work is a right, not a privilege. We treat it like a privilege, but it's a right. And we as workers have the right to demand of our bosses and of our companies to create an environment in which we want to come to work every day, that yeah. we enjoy it. And if we're the ones in positions of responsibility, then we have just that. We have a responsibility to create an environment in which people want to come to work. And here's the amazing thing. It's actually better for business. Yeah. That's the amazing thing. It's, this is not some idealistic craziness. This is how capitalism should work and works at its best. So for me, the movement was born out of the fact that it's not unique to me that I was able to reignite my passion. Mm. And I wanted to share that opportunity with as many people as I could find. Yeah, it is so heartbreaking. You're so right that so many people don't enjoy their work, yet that's the majority of their life. Correct. When you really love something that you do, it's win-win. And you come home happier, which means you have a happier marriage, yeah. you treat your kids better, your friends like you more, your you're health healthier, is better. Yeah. your health benefits. And, mm. and it's not just a neutral outcome, if it's the opposite. If you're unhappy at work, marriages are more likely to fail, kids yeah. are more likely to be yelled at. It does actually affect your health. It, yeah, it, it, totally. It, it, and so it's not a neutral sum. It's either a better or worse simply by uh, affected by the environments in yeah, which so we work. Yes, it's a multiplier effect. Yeah, both ways, positive yeah. or negative, yeah. So let's hear again from Leaders Eat Last. And in this extract, you explain why humans are not like crocodiles. A carcass of a wildebeest floats down a tributary of the Zambezi River in Botswana. The soon-to-be meal passes two hungry crocodiles that both call this part of the river home. Seeing the food, they both lunge at it, but only one will win. The faster, stronger one of the two will be the one to eat that day. Acting completely out of instinct, it will consume the carcass and swim away with a full stomach and absolutely no care in the world about the other crocodile. And though the other crocodile may swim away hungry, it will harbor no ill will toward its adversary. There is no part of the crocodile's reptilian brain that rewards any cooperative behavior. 
The animals have no positive feelings when cooperation is offered and thus no incentive to cooperate. They are, by design, cold-hearted loners. That's just how they were designed to work. Nothing personal, all instinct. And for a crocodile, it works. We, however, are not like crocodiles. Though we may share the primitive reptilian portion of our brain with them, our brain continued to grow beyond its reptile roots. We are anything but loners. The addition of the mammalian layer of our brain helped us to become highly functioning social animals. And for good reason. If we weren't adapted to live in tribes and cooperate, we would have died off ages ago. We don't have thick, scaly skin to make us less vulnerable to attack. We don't have rows of sharp teeth like a great white shark, able to keep chomping even after we lose a few. We're just not strong enough to survive alone, let alone thrive. Whether we like to admit it or not, we need each other. That's where serotonin and oxytocin come in. They are the backbone of the circle of safety. There to encourage pro-social behavior, serotonin and oxytocin help us form bonds of trust and friendship so that we will look out for each other. It is because of these two chemicals that we have societies and cultures. And it is because of these chemicals that we pull together to accomplish much bigger things than if we were to face the world alone. When we cooperate or look out for others, serotonin and oxytocin reward us with the feelings of security, fulfillment, belonging, trust, and camaraderie. When firing at the right times for the right reasons, they can help turn any one of us into an inspiring leader, a loyal follower, a close friend, a trusted partner, a believer, a Johnny Bravo. And when that happens, when we find ourselves inside a circle of safety, stress declines, fulfillment rises, our want to serve others increases, and our willingness to trust others to watch our backs skyrockets. When these social incentives are inhibited, however, we become more selfish and more aggressive. Leadership falters, cooperation declines, stress increases, as do paranoia and mistrust. If we work in environments that make it harder to earn these incentives, then our desire to help our colleagues or the organization diminishes. And absent the presence of commitment, any desire our colleagues may have to help us also declines. A vicious cycle is set in motion. The less our colleagues and leaders look out for us, the less we look out for them. The less we look out for them, the more selfish they become, and as a result, the more selfish we become. And when that happens, eventually everyone loses. Oxytocin and serotonin grease the social machine. And when they are missing, friction results. When the leaders of an organization create a culture that inhibits the release of these chemicals, it is tantamount to sabotage. Sabotage of our careers and our happiness, and sabotage of the success of the organization itself. The strength of the culture, and not its size or resources, determines an organization's ability to adapt to the times, overcome adversity, and pioneer new innovations. When the conditions are right, when a strong circle of safety is present and felt by all, we do what we do best. We act in the manner for which we were designed. We pull together. Crocodiles versus people. 
it can have its advantages, can't it? Brushing things off. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, we are not crocodiles, and we have a more sophisticated brain. And you know, as we are all aware, you know, something bad happens, and we take it personally, or we lie in bed at night and、mm. play over the events of the day and what we said and what we should have said and how dare they and how could they and you know, crocodiles just. Go on. <laughs> Having said that, I know people with more crocodile-like tendency than others. But anyway, you talk a lot about the sort of science behind your ideas, the impact of oxytocin, serotonin, and cortisol and dopamine on how people work, and also in the workplace. How important is the science element to your work? So. You mentioned before that I'm that you know that why child. It's just my natural instinct. I can't just naturally accept that something is because somebody told me it is.、Mm. I want to know why. So when somebody says you have to create an environment where people trust each other, I'd be like, agreed, but why? Yeah. And so when you ask why enough, it, you end up going backwards, you know. And so the case study method has never been really been my method, you know. This company that has great morale has a ping pong table in every conference room. So if you had a ping pong table in all your conference rooms, you'll have great morale. Like that's a case study method. But I want to know why the ping pong table makes people have great morale. And so, if you ask why enough, you end up at the dawn of man, and you have to understand the the evolution and the biology. And I don't consider myself an expert in anything. I consider myself a student.、Mm. And so, you know, experts tell you what it is, and when you ask why, they say because I told you so, because、mm. I've studied this. And for me. Because I consider myself a student, I'd be like, "Well, let me try and explain what I learned." And I find that to be more fun to take people along with me on the journey that I'm learning about too. And some of the stuff can be easily dismissed as fluff or a nice to have. They're called soft skills very often, which I reject. It's they're human skills.、Mm. You have hard skills, which is the skills of your job, and then you have human skills, which is the skills of interaction with the people with whom you work. And so. I think very often it's not that they don't exist; it's that they're hard to measure, they're hard to see, and so by giving it the biology, when you explain the biology or neuroscience behind these things, more than legitimacy, it grounds it in something tangible. Okay, so we're going to move on to your next object now, which is.、Uh, it's a photograph of Victoria and Dennis Hopper. Most people know Dennis Hopper, the actor and director and writer. Yeah. Um, I was at a black tie affair many years ago. Before my career took off, a friend of mine who was a bit more of a muckety muck was invited to、uh, a black tie affair, and I was invited as the plus one. So I went to this event, and I was all starry eyed. And we went to a dinner. You know, there was a couple of celebrities there, of which Dennis Hopper was one of them. And I happened to have been seated next to his wife, Victoria, and she and I hit it off, and we talked the whole night. And it was right at the time when I was going through the really hard time in my life, where I had sort of lost my passion, and was starting to theorize about this why thing. And Victoria's dad worked in neuroscience, and she started telling—I don't know how it came up, but it came up naturally. She started telling me about the limbic brain and the neocortex, and I became fascinated by it. And I went back and sort of did my own research, and I realized that this little idea that I had called the golden circle. Overlap perfectly with how the brain actually makes decisions. So I hadn't simply discovered this nice little idea. I actually discovered something a little deeper, where my passion comes from. And so I credit Victoria for being the catalyst for my ability to articulate the why.、Um, I actually dedicated my first book, Start with Why, to her. That's great. Now, Leaders Eat Last is being released in a new edition, isn't it? And you've added a chapter on millennials. In the workplace, so we'll talk about that. But let's hear an extract from that chapter now. Like the generations who preceded them, millennials have been impacted by the dominant events and technologies of their youth. 
As a result, we're starting to hear some new and quite specific complaints about the millennial generation that we cannot as easily write off as kids just being kids. These go beyond the same recycled grievances every generation has about the next. These are unique characterizations that are significantly attached to the behavior and performance of millennials in the workplace. Many employers complain that their millennial employees, for example, are poor communicators, lack the instinct to be proactive, cannot handle critical feedback, are impatient, are unable to commit, and the big one, have a sense of entitlement. Of the many, many stories I've heard about millennial employees, one story perfectly captures the entitled attitude that they are accused of having. Courtney, a young entry-level employee, was hired as a part-time personal assistant. She was paid $20 an hour to be on site and on call for the occasional errand. For example, fetching coffee, picking up lunch, and so on. Knowing that she was a performing artist, Courtney's employer encouraged her to research casting calls online when she wasn't needed. She could also read a book, surf social media, or stream a movie if she wanted. The point is, the majority of the time that she was paid to be at work was basically her own, to do with as she pleased. As if that were not enough, she also had flexible work hours. She got to choose the days and times she worked based on her audition and rehearsal schedule. After some time, Courtney asked for a raise. She wanted $30 per hour. When asked to make her case for a 50% pay increase, she made one simple argument. That's what I think I'm worth. She was not invited back to work again. This story is not unique. There seems to be a disproportionately high number of employers who feel that their entry-level millennial employees are making unreasonable demands. Across companies big and small, employers share tales not just about requests for unjustified pay increases, but also things like premature promotions, customized schedules, and open access to senior executives. Pesky millennials. They're not pesky, they're just misunderstood. A product of their environment? We're all products of our environment, and I think that's part of the challenge, which is we are too quick to judge them rather than understand the environment in which they grew up. Our grandparents may be miserly and frugal. It's because they grew up during the war during times of rations. We know why they're frugal, because mm. we understand the context in which they came of age. Well, if we understand the context in which uh, millennials came of age, you'll understand a lot of the way in which they see the world. So I think we're sometimes too quick to judge them. And what I'm sort of trying to uncover here is just a little empathy, just like, you know. Poor millennials. Yeah, I mean, no, not poor. <laughs> just, just, it's just, it's not, it's not a question of judgment, of good or bad. Uh, it's just... It just is. It is, it is yeah. what it is, yeah. Yeah, OK. What would millennials, do you think, say about their employers? Rightfully so. I think many of them would complain that their employers don't care about them and aren't giving them a place where they can make an impact or, or that they uh, feel like they can make a difference. I think some of their assertions are quite right. The older generations will suffer in silence. Thank goodness the millennials are speaking up and saying, no, you need to fix this. Yeah. So... Yeah, I think millennials would complain about many of the work environments. But also, they don't have points of reference prior. So they don't actually know that it hasn't always been this way, that using mass redundancies, for example, to balance the books is a relatively recent occurrence. Like, mm. you know, 20 years ago, it just didn't happen. 20 yeah. or 30 years ago, it just did not happen, where annually we would use redundancies because we missed our arbitrary projections. Now it's become so normal 
we don't even you know bat an eyelid when yeah. somebody announces it. And so they don't know that that's not how business actually works. Yeah, they, they think th- that's a normal part of business, which it's not. Yeah, they think that's how it is. Yeah. Well, it's time now for your final object. So what? Yeah, it's a picture of a flag-draped casket in the cargo bay of a military transport plane. Leaders Eat Last would not have happened had it not been for a very intense experience that I had. Um, I went uh, to Afghanistan with the United States Air Force. I was just there for a day. I went to Bagram Air Base. And it was very intense, and a lot of things on our trip went wrong. Uh, And we thought we were going to get stuck there. And long story short, we ended up coming home on an unscheduled plane, a plane that we weren't supposed to be on. But we were the only three passengers, me and my two escorts. And it was a we were bringing home a fallen soldier. And so it was a nine and a half hour overnight flight. And I flew home in the back of the cargo bays where I was with this single flag draped casket in the middle of this plane. And it, it, it really affected me. You know, I, on this trip, I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about what purpose and service really mean. And I had the deep honor of bringing home someone that understood service a lot more than I ever will. And it really, it really affected me. And it was the impetus for this book, Leaders Eat Last, that experience that I had. That's where I wanted to understand trust and cooperation. I saw people who were willing to give their lives for each other, even if they didn't like each other. Yet in the business world, we don't even like to give up credit for things, let alone our lives. And I just wanted to understand where these amazing people came from. And I realized it's not the people, it's the environment that you get the environment right, that people are willing to sacrifice for each other, no matter the context, whether it's in war or in business. So yeah, it was that very intense experience that has stuck with me that became Leaders Eat Last. So Simon, what does the future hold for you? So the good news is, somebody asked me recently, you know, will I be writing another book? And the good news is, uh, as long as I still struggle with, you know, life, yes, I'll write books. And I'm dealing with another one right now. I'm writing another one right now called The Infinite Game, which is, okay, start with why is all about how to understand where your passion comes from and attract people who believe what you believe. Leaders Eat Less is like, okay, now that you've attracted the people, what do you do with them? Mm. And The Infinite Game is really about, okay, you've built this amazing organization where you all care about each other, but you operate in reality. And the rest of the world doesn't see the world world, and doesn't care about your idealism and your values. You know, they'll undermine you to make an extra pound. So how do you function in the reality of the world when you want to build a good organization where people love coming to work? Because those two seem to be in conflict. So that's my own struggle. How do you? That's not going to be a conclusion for that book. I hate to break it it to you. No, there is. It's amazing. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because as I normally do, I ask why and understand things. And I found solutions in game theory. Mathematics. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And you know, sort of John Nash kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, he he was the guy, the subject of a beautiful mind. So yeah, it's completely changed the way I see the world and challenged me. Which is the only reason I write these books is because they actually affect me. And then my publisher says, "Yeah, I'll, I'll publish that." You know, <laughs> none of these things were intended to be books. They're yeah. just intended to solve my own problems. <laughs> I'm writing it right now, and I'm really enjoying writing it. Uh, plus, we have a book called Find Your Why that comes out in September, which is. The biggest complaint I get on Start With Why is I make a case for it, but I don't tell people how to find their why. Right. And so my amazing team, we all work together and we took the process that we use to help people discover their why and we put it into a book. Oh. So Find Your Why comes out this September. Well, on that note, thank you so much, Simon. It's been great chatting to you and we look forward to the books that are still to come. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Out now from Penguin Random House Audio. A memoir from a man with a truly unique perspective. James Aldred is a professional British tree climber. 
cameraman and adventurer who has made a career out of travelling the world, filming wildlife for the BBC and climbing trees. Thousands of tiny yellow fruits lay mouldering on the jungle floor around me. The sickly sweet smell of fermentation hung heavily in the musty air and thick clouds of tiny fruit flies hung over everything in a low mist, swirling like dust in the shafts of early morning sunlight. The smell was almost intoxicating. It reminded me of my failed attempts at homebrew bubbling in barrels under the stairs back home. Bending down for a closer look, I realised these must be the wild figs I was looking for. Some were hard, about the size and shape of a marble. Others had clearly been there a while and lay ruptured and rotting. They didn't look very much like figs to me, but this was a wild, tropical rainforest species bearing little resemblance to anything stacked in supermarkets back home. They didn't look very palatable either, but judging from the amounts that had been knocked down by animals foraging in the canopy 200 feet above me, I was in the minority. The ground was absolutely littered. Taking out my knife, I cut one open. The skin was tough, but the spongy flesh inside yielded to the blade and was filled with dozens of tiny powdery buds. Its centre was hollow, home to a couple of squirming grubs. So here were the figs, but where was the tree that had produced them? I peered through the thick vegetation around me. Everything about the Borneo rainforest was so exciting, alien and wild to me. The sheer diversity of life here was staggering. Everything I saw demanded closer inspection and the deeper I peered, the more complex it became. Like looking through binoculars at the night sky for the first time and seeing rank upon rank of new stars appear in the former emptiness beyond familiar constellations. The Man Who Climbs Trees is out now and is available to download and own from Audible and iTunes.